0: one of the unwritten pieces of history of many of the most successful companies that we know of all have this fact in them which is at the beginning there were always two of them we all know bill gates of microsoft not so many people know or at least in this generation know who paul allen was paul allen was the technical guy who built DOS. right bill was the guy who sold it now bill became more technical over time but paul allen was the technical guy apple Jobs was the business guy, Steve Wozniak was the technology guy, Oracle, Larry Ellison was the business guy, and Bob Eisner was the technical guy. And you can go down the list, you can keep going down the list. Most of them at the beginning had two folks because it's very difficult at the early stage when you're young to do both.
1: and examples from some of my work over the last few years coaching the CEOs and leadership teams of some amazingly successful tech firms. The Melting Pot is my attempt to synthesize what I've learned along the way to help you build a highly scalable business and realize the potential of your life's work. If you enjoy the episode, head over to monkhouseandcompany.com forward slash podcast to find today's show notes and more editions of The Melting Pot. While you're there, if you subscribe to the newsletter you can pick up a copy of my new book F- Plan B: How to scale your technology business faster and achieve Plan A. Enjoy. Hello, today I'm talking with and learning from Robbie Van Adebay. Robbie has been in the startup world for a long time. So he went off to the US when he was a young lad and ended up in Silicon Valley. And in the late 90s, he co-founded a business called Silicon Valley Internet Partners, got backing from the likes of Kleiner Perkins. They rebranded the business Viant, they went public, they grew rapidly. This is at the time when 45 million people versus five and a half billion people were on the internet. Internet was being done by dial-up modem and businesses were trying to work out how the internet would impact their business model. So they scaled that business very, very rapidly. They were global. They were hiring hundreds of people a year. And that's really what we talk about. We talk about some of the things that Robbie learned scaling that and other businesses he was involved in subsequently. And what he does that, how he works now as an advisor or board member working with startups in Europe. So Viant badly impacted by the dot-com bus. They did a round of layoffs they cut 10% the first time in 2020, which they called Pearl Harbor. And in 2001 and 2002, they took out another 40% each time. And they called those the Hiroshima and Nagasaki rounds of cuts. And then the business was eventually sold in 2002. Robbie's involved in some amazing businesses at the moment. One in particular that I think is very exciting. It's a business called Arkea.me, And this is a mental health application. One of their first customers is the US Air Force, turns out the mental health of a pilot can correlate with mission success or mission failure. Does everybody come back or do people die? So just this ability to assess pilots before they go out on missions to ensure that they are actually fit to fly. must be a lot of social pressure to say you're fit to fly when you're not. And so this gives people a data point to assess fitness to fly. It's very, very interesting. Robbie and I have a conversation about should you bootstrap or take money? How do you hire? We talk a lot about how do you hire? How do you build teams? Lessons that he's learned over time. The things that he knows to be true about scaling startups that are as applicable today as they were when he learned those lessons several years ago. Great conversation with Robbie. I'm sure you'll love it.
0: Hey, Dom. Good to be chatting. Robbie Van Aribay here, a Brit who spent the bulk of his career in the US, much of it on the West Coast in the technology area. A coder to begin with, you know, rose through the ranks, added to the skill set, became a manager, then became a, a senior manager, then became a co founder, and then became a founder. So I've been doing this stuff a long while. Uh, I recently returned. To this side of the pond, and uh, I'm having fun helping friends, associates scale their businesses. Very good. Very
1: good. What was your most successful exit?
0: There's two in the mix. One was the shortest time spent with the greatest return, and the other one was the greatest overall return. The shortest amount of time was uh, a company called Illustra. I joined as a Head of product management there and was there all of 12 months. And we got acquired by Informix for at the time, what was considered a heck of a lot of money. Today it's rounding error, but back then it was real money. And uh, from the time spent there versus the return that I got, it was a great run. A lot of great people, a lot of fun. We basically figured out that you would store a web page as atoms in a database as atomic elements in the database and then compile it on the fly. It turned out that that was the right way. That's the way the web works today. In fact, our technology is the P one of the P's in PHP, Postgres. Uh, it was the commercialization of Postgres. So Informix bought the company as we began to get traction. In terms of overall numbers, best exit was a company called Vine, of which I was the co-founder with a guy called Eric Greenberg. We started off life as uh, Silicon Valley Internet Partners. And the premise was simple. It was uh, the spring of 96, April 96. Building transaction-based websites at that time was a very difficult thing to do. The tech stack was hard. Stack is, is a bit of a misnomer. You had to sort of hand code the bulk of it. And I knew a handful of people, about 20 guys, who knew how to do this stuff. And so we started a consulting firm to build transaction-based websites for people. And as they say in life, so much of everything is timing. So much of success is timing. And our timing was about as perfect as it got. The big five as they were back then, Anderson, EMY, Deloitte, and so on, were all focused on Y2K projects. And so... Anything less than a million dollars, sometimes it was even five million dollars was of almost no interest to those guys. They were so focused on the, on the big stuff. And so, you know, if you had a website to build, you, you didn't want to spend that kind of money in the beginning. You just wanted to try it out to see what the result might be. So we were there with a number of other small organizations. All of us grew very rapidly and, uh, it was real fun. We went public in June of 96. <laughs> With what revenue? Uh, No, we had real revenue. Yeah? Yeah, I'm I'm not remembering how much revenue, but we had real (laughs) revenue. No, and we were profitable. I'm sure I can dig those numbers up at some point. But it was a real business. No, I mean, it's
1: 1996, 45 million people in the world were on the internet then. Now it's uh, five and a half billion.
0: There you go. I mean, and let's be clear, when you say people were on online, you know, I remember... Dial-up modem. I remember A, dial-up mode, and B, I remember I remember Coca-Cola.com. I remember the big release was that the Coca-Cola logo had flames around it. That was like, and that was it. They didn't do anything else. It just had the Coca-Cola logo with flames around it. And they paid someone to build that for them. And uh, that was the era where everyone was trying to figure out what did my business look like. And And the thing that was very clear to us as an organization was this wasn't about building technology. You have to go back to foundational issues like what is my business and what do I, what do I do with that business online? So for instance, in the early days, we were working with Compaq and I remember sitting in one of the meetings and most senior people at Compaq said, we don't want to sell our PCs online because we'll cannibalize our channel. And thus ensued very long. I mean, these conversations went on for weeks, months even, about what it meant for a company like Compact to sell PCs online and what it meant to, to quote, unquote, cannibalize the channel. And you know, our message was always the same as a company, which is, if you don't cannibalize it, someone else will do it for you. And all the other guys, remember, there was Gateway and, and other folks that had essentially fully embraced the online model. So everyone else had to play catch-up. So you had to work through with them what the business issues were with regard to doing that. Pricing, logistics, delivery, all that stuff were were issues to be worked out.
1: It's fascinating, isn't it? Because clients have similar conversations today about what does digital transformation mean. And by and large, they're having the same types of conversations.
0: Dom, unfortunately, we have enough gray hairs to be able to say we've been doing this stuff a while. And, and I think the, the bit that's just <laughs> fascinating to me is that it's the same conversations, a little bit different flavor, a little bit sort of variations on a theme, but a lot of the core stuff is the same. And, and often that's true of the technology as well. The way a lot of these technologies work are kind of the way that they used to. I guess the only thing that I look at and say, wow. We never really did anything like that before is, is basically the new data science, machine learning, quote-unquote, AI stuff. That's new. I don't remember anybody doing stuff like that before. And it's a different way of thinking about problems. It's fascinating. And the opportunities are endless. But those questions are around, well, what do we do with it? And how do we do things with it? Those questions are the same questions. Just they end up with different answers, right?
1: I was talking to a client this morning, and now they can probably analyze some data in a way that they couldn't have done before. You know, they can go looking for patterns. They've got a tool that allows them to go and look for patterns rather than have a human being trying to do it.
0: I'm fascinated by the realm. It was enough to drive me back to school. I did a bunch of Coursera courses in the AI realm to really get back to basics and figure out, you know, okay. When people say AI, what do they really mean?
1: Versus machine learning,
0: and of course, it's it is machine learning, right? There is no AI yet; it is machine learning.
1: For a while, about a year ago, people were still arguing about that. Yeah, and now they don't argue; they just call it they just call it AI now.
0: They do, I right? know, and <laughs> as do I, because it's too itty bitty to get into the. You know what? No, it's machine learning. But
1: some of the things that haven't changed are the people and what it takes to build a, build a business. And so what are, what are some of the sort of heuristics or fundamentals that you now think to be true or know to be true about starting a business and scaling a business? Have we caught up? Is the ecosystem in Europe the same as, the, as it is in the US?
0: I think that we've caught up most of the way. You know, when I, I went to the US in '85. I started doing business on the West Coast in 89 and nothing of that ilk really existed in, in Europe at that time, or, or at least I wasn't privy to that. The whole ecosystem was in full swing. You had the venture community, you had the lawyers able to structure early stage businesses, you had the marketing consultants and and all the people that you needed to help build businesses. You had... You had real estate guys willing to take equity in lieu of rent. The whole thing was structured to allow people to start businesses very easily and very quickly. And that, you know, that ecosystem didn't exist in Europe. There was another piece, right, which is the colleges churning out kids who didn't want to go work for a big company. They wanted to go work for a startup. That was part of the ecosystem as well. and. Successful entrepreneurs who had built technology companies previously, who were willing to put their hands in their pocket, write a check to a promising idea and sort of provide that seed stage funding and, and more importantly, advice to those folks. So that was, it was everywhere, right? right. Again, that really didn't start coming into being until... The first go-round was when I came back to Europe briefly in ninety nine, 2000. So we had a brief flurry of it then. And then when the crash hit, it all went away, but began to build slowly and slowly, right? Now we've got all those things, right? And if I had to call out what the most important part of that was, is, I think it's successful entrepreneurs who've done this before, who are happy and willing to work with people embarking on the journey for the first you know or the first or the first few times. That that makes all the difference, I think, right? Those folks are willing to write checks, but they're also more importantly able to provide counsel and advice on, and here's what you do when you run into this problem. Here's what you do when you get to this stage kind of thing.
1: The thing is that it's, you know, you spend your time doing that. I spend my time, a lot of my time doing that. Because people are hitting those speed bumps in the road or first time round. Yeah. And it's much quicker if somebody just says, look, there's not a lot of learning here. Just here's the answer.
0: Yeah, here's the answer. And, you know, I'll come back to that because that issue of here's the answer and what happens next plays into how I pick what to get involved in. Right. But, yes, I believe Europe has caught up. And actually, we've got a little of an edge, that they don't have in the U.S., which is that because we have social systems set up to catch people so they don't fall too far, we have free healthcare, we have free education, we have a lot of other stuff in place, you are able to take risks to go at new things perhaps more easily than you do in the U.S. Now, I know that's counterintuitive and you don't hear that as being the narrative. But I actually think there's something to that here. You know, there used to be a time, no doubt, where in the US, if you failed, no one cared. It was like, okay, you failed, have another go. In Europe, there, there were much bigger issues associated with that, right? I think that the attitude, again, is now here. That's probably one of the big things that have changed, which is the cultural attitude to failure. It's more acceptable. It's more acceptable to swing-miss no one cares if you step up again to swing again.
1: I think uh, access to capital I don't see as a challenge, but I do think there's, um, there's maybe an attitude around, I'm going to build the biggest company in the world in a thing. And I've talked to Herman Simon a number of times, and he said, you know, he wrote a book called Hidden Champions, where he looked for all of the privately held businesses in the world that turned that did a billion dollars. And he found lots of them in Germany because he felt as though Germans would go global quickly. He thinks now those businesses don't do that. Chinese businesses will do that. But I, I speak to a lot of people in the UK. And in the US, because you've got a single market, I think people would go niche because there's a big enough single market in the UK. They start to go broad much more quickly. They feel as though going to the US is going to be impossible. Going to France and Germany is a different language. And it's they're sort of starting a business on on our island, I think there's some challenges around. But I meet people who've started businesses in Germany and Spain. And again, they're doing, their, they're doing business in English and they're going global from the beginning. So no, it, almost if anything, the attitude is more global from Europe than it, is, than it is
0: from here. I would totally agree with that. And more global than, than the US thinks as well.
1: Yes. What you see so often, it's just easier to build. <laughs> it takes a long time before you need to go to the rest of the world.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, and And it's not as instinctive a thing to do in the U.S. as it is to do here, right? Yeah. Here, our markets, quote-unquote, are also small. Yeah. that you have no choice but to go elsewhere, right? In the U.S., because it's so big, you don't have to go elsewhere for a while. You know, I think the bit that's changed in that is the web is global, right? You put your product up. As long as you do a good job of describing it sufficiently, much of the world does business in English. I know it's a terrible thing to say that, but there is some truth to that. It's the language of technology, or appears to be. And the reality is now that if you build the right website, people all over the world will find your product. So it's happened with many of the companies I've been associated with where you start off with a geographic focus before not too long at all. You've got customers all over the world because people are finding your product and they want to use it, yeah. right? And, you know, especially if it's one of these, the characteristics seem to, to be, uh, if it's in a niche sector that where that sector operates the same all over the world, Yeah, tick that does it, right? Or if you're so unique in what you're doing and so cutting edge and the technology just doesn't exist elsewhere that pulls you global as well, right? The earlier earlier adopters exist in every market, right? Yeah. And so when you've got a great piece of technology that just doesn't exist elsewhere, you'll get dragged internationally whether you like it or not. So, yeah, I, I remember when there was the rule of thumb that said you had to assign a million dollars per country to go global. It was like, that's the cost to go global. You're going to have to get the legal work. You're going to have to translate the product. You're going to have to... People are going to kind of fly back and forth and whatever. And your budget, you know, and this was circa late nineties was a million dollars per country. Ain't so anymore. Right.
1: Well, now I uh, certainly have got a number of clients who are remote first businesses and have employees, maybe in 10 or 15 countries.
0: You no, know, I listened to, I listened to the interview you did with Jay and that's the perfect encapsulation of going global in this world that we have today of network connections and Zoom calls and so on. I mean, she built from, you know, what was it? Four people to 70 people and 20 million ARR <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> completely remotely. I mean, yeah. in 18 months. I mean, yeah. that's a great story. Everyone should listen to that. I forget what the, what the number podcast is, but I think he did a relatively recently. Yeah,
1: only it was maybe a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah, we were chatting before we uh, we pressed record. You've got a bootstrap versus take money, bootstrap but VC. What's the?
0: Yeah, at risk of offending all our VC friends,
1: <laughs> they're hard to offend. Come on,
0: uh. they've got they've got thick skins. <laughs> you know, first of all, I think we do. Our entrepreneurial colleagues or the younger ones just maybe starting out on this journey a disservice by always describing the journeys of the Googles and the Facebooks and the you know and so on of the world. Because they are they're the black swan events, yeah. right? they're the exceptions. That's not how most businesses go. Yeah. And yet all the narrative, all the history, all the lessons come from businesses like that. And yet, there is a lot of other ways to do stuff out there. And not everything makes sense to fund with large sums of money from other folks, from a fund and the quote-unquote venture model. There are other ways to do this, right? And yeah, I always tell early-stage entrepreneurs, folks really just getting going, to study up on Atlassian. Canon Brooks and the guys, an amazing story, taking JIRA and, and essentially engineering first, allowing people to find the stuff, taking an open source probe to it, getting them to pay when they moved to the enterprise edition and so on. And essentially that company was bootstrapped and they did take capital right at the end. And, you know, I think the story goes something to the effect of the money that they took before they went public was still sitting in the bank when they went public. They didn't need they didn't raise money because they needed money. They raised money because they wanted to get the right people around the table. So when they did go public, the market would behave the way they hoped it would behave, which it did. Right? Yeah. But they didn't do it for the money. They built a business that essentially was cash flow positive and profitable from the get go. And I think that that bootstrappable model is something that We should do, guys like us who try and help people going on this journey. We should do a better job of explaining to people when do you do that, and how do you do it, and what about what are the positives and and what are the negatives, right? Now there there is a time occasionally in those things to take capital, and that is when you found product market fit and you need to go faster. That's when you take the money. Taking money when you're still trying to figure out where the market is, it is a very dangerous thing for everyone involved, I think. And I don't know, I just, I've been doing this a long time now, and I think I've done most permutations. I've, I've taken money from excellent organizations that, you know, helped me build great businesses, but it's not the only way to do it.
1: Yeah. And, the, uh, how many of the businesses you're currently involved in are bootstrap versus VC-backed?
0: Bootstrap, again, the term, for me, bootstrap is you, you don't raise institutional money. You might raise some money, but it's from friends and family. Right? In that case, all of them, all of them, none, none of the things I'm working with right now have institutional involvement. There's pros and cons with that.
1: Profitable, all of them?
0: Uh, Yet? One of them is two of them. We're still figuring it out. We're using revenue. We're using revenue from opportunities to fund the growth of the business. Okay. Which, you know, is incredibly hard. Yeah. But, but doable. Yeah. Right. It just, it's a different playbook. But there is a playbook for it.
1: Instead of flaming out quickly, it's the hard, hard yards. It also depends on. It depends on the market segment.
0: Absolutely. And it depends on the opportunity, right? You know, if, you've, if you really have found gold in them hills, right, and, and no one else is there, then maybe taking capital to dominate the market and be the only player and, and you know, take eighty percent market share is the way to go. But not all markets look like that, right? Not all opportunities look like that. Some segments are small, you know? They're, you know, a couple of billion in opportunity, which sounds big, but for some folks, that sounds small, right? But if you can build a business that does a couple hundred million a year in revenue and is profitable, well, there's a lot of value in that,
1: right? Yeah. <laughs> You're not going to be as famous as the founders of Google, but you can build a sustainable business there.
0: You can build a sustainable business and you can make a lot of people very happy, right? You can yeah. make your team financially successful. You, you can become financially successful. I mean, you know, maybe if you need Gaddy Chiron or things like that to make, to make your day go well, then maybe not. But if, if you don't need that, then there's there's a, lot of, there's a lot of opportunity down at the bottom,
1: right? And so what do you think, what does it take I mean, if you're not going to go and borrow money and you're going to do the hard yards, what are the things that, things that just have to be true?
0: Well, we talked about this a little, a little bit before we started recording, but you know, one of the things I always tell early stage entrepreneurs is there is one of the unwritten pieces of history of many of the most successful companies that we know of all have this fact in them, which is at the beginning, there were always two of them. We all know Bill Gates of Microsoft. Not so many people know, at least in this generation, know who Paul Allen was. Paul Allen was the technical guy who built MS-DOS, right? Bill was the guy who sold it. Now, Bill became more technical over time, but Paul Allen was the technical guy. Apple. Jobs was the business guy. Steve Wozniak was the technology guy. Oracle. Larry Ellison was the business guy, and, and Bob Eisner was a technical guy. And you can go down the list. You can keep going down the list. Most of them at the beginning had two folks because it's very difficult for two at the early stage when you're young to do both. You're either really good at the business part because that's what you've learned to do or you're really good at the technical part because that's what you've learned to do. Being able to do both is there's not many folks who do both well. So you find You find the other person who can do the thing that you can't do and you team up with them and you build the business together. Now, oftentimes what happens is people evolve. Bill Gates is clearly a deep technologist at this point, right? And a great businessman. And so people add skills as the years go by that allow them to play the larger role. And that means that the team at the top changes. Paul Allen made the decision to leave Microsoft at a fairly early stage because he was so financially successful, he didn't have the he didn't want to continue. Right? So, you know, that process of of building the team becomes the journey. So in the beginning there are two. Then there's how do you build the team? And you know, I know that you and I have talked in the past about this. Building the right team is everything. Right. It's more important than the money. It's more important than the market opportunity. It's more important than anything. Having the right group of people to do this with determines whether you're successful or not. So, how do you go about finding the right people? And so, you know, I, I spend a lot of time talking people through hiring processes, right? Because that's, that's where it begins. How do you hire good people? I.e., what does that interview look like? Right? And so at Vion, we fine-tuned this to, a, to the nth degree. We spent a lot of time figuring out how to hire great people and making sure that we, that we did it well. And we grew incredibly fast. You know, first year, I think we finished at 24, second year, we were 50, third year, we were 100 and something, third year, we were 250 and, and so on, right? And if you're hiring 100 people in a year, then you're interviewing a thousand people.
1: Yeah.
0: Right? At least. So you have to have at least, so you have to have scalable processes for these, right? Which means that you need to have some technology in there. We built our own back then, but there are now technology for doing these things. But, you know, I always say the keys are this. I won't talk about where you place your ads to find good people or what that process looks like, but assume that you found someone who you think is a candidate, right? Step one is, do they have the skills required of the role? So there is a a series of technical interviews to determine, does this person have the skills to do the role that you're looking for them to do, right? And I've always found that, you know, most people interview poorly. They ask questions where they go, do you know how to code X? And the person goes, yes, I do know how to code X. And they go, okay, do you know how to code Y? You know, interviewing processes that, that... request evidence now i think google and the gang may have taken a little too far with some of the tests that they they give people now it's one way of ensuring that your engineers know how to code is to test them and and i know in a lot of places they do that and there there is merit to that but there's also merit to figuring out can this person solve problems and that and that's what you're looking for in the early part of a business it's do they have the skills and are they problem solvers. Do they run through walls walls to solve problems? Yeah. Right? So there's the technical fit. tick. You find that they get technical fit. Then the next piece is cultural fit, right? Does this person fit the culture of the business that we're trying to create? Again, you and I have been at this a while. We all know there are incredibly capable people who are a nightmare to work with, right? And vice versa. There are really, really nice people who don't know anything, right? (laughs) So making sure that they are a cultural fit to the business that you're trying to build is, is appropriate. And, and different companies have different cultures. Some companies are more aggressive than others. Some companies are, are less aggressive than others. Others, you know, it, it just, it's different. Once you've figured out what kind of company you're going to be, you need to find people that fit that culture. And the other piece of that that I always stress is no group interviews, I think they're a complete and utter waste of time. I say that definitively. I think one-on-one interviews are the only way to grow. You get a th- group of three people interviewing one candidate, you're wasting everybody's time, in my opinion, number one. Number two is because you're going to do one-on-one interviews, what you do is you make sure that everyone's taking notes during their interview and that at the end of that interview process, say they took they the to three, four, five people, that you all sit in a room and you compare the notes that you have taken on the person you have talked to. Because in today's world, people learn from the interview before, right? So they'll say, oh, yeah, I really like doing X. And you go, oh, we don't do it that way. We do it this way. And then the next in the next person they talk to, oh, I always do it this way. Because they figured out from the interview that they just had that they have to say something different, right? So you've got to have a set of notes so you can truly triangulate on where is this person coming from? At Vion, one of the, the rules that we had during interview process was was this, right? You had to say whether you would be willing to work with that individual. And you weren't allowed to this. Yeah. Right? Yeah, to this or that. Up or down. And if, if you had if you had five people interviewing someone and any one of them went this, the process was over. That was it. And it means that you, you cycle through a lot of people trying to find the right candidates, right? But it also means that your chances of getting the right people into the business increase dramatically. And, you know, we, back in the Viant days, it, yeah, it was a minimum of 10 interviews, five, five for technical skills and five for cultural fit. And I know that it sounds crazy, but the culture that came out of that was mm-hmm. unbelievable.
1: Do you know I was i i think you're absolutely right. every now and again reread the Jim Collins's books, and I'm struck every time that I feel as though I'm probably quite harsh with clients on their process for improving the quality of their people and then I read the book, Jim Collins's stuff, and I realize I'm not maniacal enough and i was I was with a client last week, you know sometimes you just you get your breaths taken away. So they they have a recruitment process, and if somebody fails the process part way through, they still carry on. And it's like, why would you do that? And somebody went, oh, I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know. It's a good question. Let's change that. But it's you know five interviews, and if somebody gave you know thumbs down at interview two, they would still do interview three, four, five. It's like, don't do that. You're just wasting your time. You. Somebody's already decided that this candidate's not going to make it. Stop! Stop wasting your time.
0: It's why at Viant, one of the things that we would do. So Friday, I mean, we were a hiring machine. So our structure was Friday mornings were interview mornings across our network of offices. You, you know, you basically said to people, assume that from nine to twelve on a Friday morning, there is a high likelihood that we, you will be asked to interview folks um And lunch was basically you'd get everyone in a room who'd done interviews that morning, and, and we provided lunch to the team of people that did the interviewing, and you'd ask people to give their feedback. And it became part, part of the culture. Every, everybody knew that that was what Friday mornings were for, and that's and and it wasn't one of those, oh man, you telling me I have to do that kind of thing, you know, like it people were happy to participate in that process because they were part of building the company.
1: Yeah, I've got a good friend who is at Amazon. He's worked for me a couple of times and I was out for dinner with him recently. He's one of their bar raisers. And, you know, I think he did 300 interviews last year. And it's, you know, he just, the, the hiring managers have to use him and the other bar raisers. And they have to prove to Mike that, the person they want to hire is better than half the people in their team. And I love that. It just forces you to be constantly raising the bar rather than allowing it to come down and takes the pressure of pace or, or feeling under pressure to hire, takes that away. Well, it doesn't take it away. It just means you can't, you can't bend to it.
0: Which brings me to, to one of the other pieces of my hiring philosophies, right, which is hire people better than you. And it's one of those things where we all it all just trips off. The, we've been saying this for 30 years. I mean, I, I remember the first time I heard that. I'm like, wow, that's a really interesting concept. Mm, sounds like a good idea. And then I watched people do it. And here's what happens. If you are ever really talking to an individual who really, no, really is better than you. 99% of people won't hire that person because they're afraid. If this person really is better than me, then he's gonna, they're going to call me out on issues and they're going to show me that I'm wrong and they might take my job and they may end up... And most people don't have the courage to, to take that step. And if you have the courage to hire people who really, no, really, really are better than you, you're going to build a world-class company. That's the way that you do it.
1: I think what for me what goes hand in hand with that is, I say to so many times in an organisation, the managers, particularly in a fast-growing businesses, don't really want to be managers. They're managers because they were first in, longest there, best skill as an as an individual contributor. And I was with a client recently, and they thought maybe a third of their managers were people that they would rehire into a management role. But only a third. The other two thirds were people, they are where they are. And I, I often say to those managers, look, your job is to make yourself redundant. And it has the same impact on people, sets off their fight and flight response. They're fearful. And I say, because you can't... Look, This business is doubling in size every two or three years. You're going to be passed by people unless you can free yourself up to be promoted. You need to make yourself redundant. Your job is to build your team. And if you can hire somebody better than you, you can get out of that seat quicker.
0: That's exactly right. I had exactly that experience. I was working in this fast-growing organization and all these opportunities were popping up and I was being passed over. And I I went into the CEO's office and I'm like, What's going on? You're giving all this great stuff to all these other people. Am I not doing a good? He's like, no, no, you're incredible. I'm like, so what? He's like, but you're too valuable. I can't take you out of this role because if I take you out of this role, who's who's going to do it? And you know, the light bulb went on. I'm like, I got to hire my replacements. I've got to show that I am quote unquote redundant, and you know that I'm good at what I do, so that when all the new opportunities come along, that I can get a chance to do those things. So. Totally with you. That, you've got to manage your way out of the role so that so you can go and do other fun things.
1: I think that's one of the sort of managers who are A players will hire people better than them. And that those sort of B players will hire, well,
0: they won't. They hire C players. I mean, again, we can be honest on these things, but B, B players hire C players. They don't hire B players, they hire C players. And that is when... That's when problems really start.
1: It goes off, it goes off quickly. I was listening to uh, a book about, you know, wh- wh- how did Amazon put in this bar raiser methodology? And they'd hired this guy to be director of software development as they were scaling up their software development team massively. And he brought in a load of guys from his old company. And, you know, his these, these fellow directors are standing there going, they're just not very good. And it's like, well, what can we do that's helpful to the whole organ, and, you know, it's like trying to solve this problem and then bar raising becomes it, right? So it, that protects you from managers. Or, you know, certainly one of the things that killed Rackspace was we hired a load of people in from outside who brought in their own culture and we didn't have something like bar raising or, or a really robust culture fit process in place. And, you know, it went from being a, an organization without much politics to being an organization riven with politics very, very quickly.
0: Remember the old TV show Kung Fu and he takes the pebble from his hand and he goes, time to leave, right? That is, that I always, you know, the minute that that starts, time to leave, right? It's, uh, no. But, you know, we have the opportunity to help shape those things so that it's never time to leave, right? And, you know, I, I think this... This thing of what is our culture, again, it's I was very intentional about that in, in companies that I was founder of. You know, Very early on, would sit down with, with the people I was doing it with and say, what is our culture? Let's articulate what that is. You can't do it on day one. You can write a bunch of stuff that you aspire to, but until you've actually been doing it for a bit, you actually don't know what your culture is. Your culture will then emerge after six months. And that's when you write it down. You say, this is our culture. This is where we're going. If these aren't your values, you should go now. Right? If, if these aren't your values, don't join us. you got to be clear on those things.
1: We did, uh, we did a session with the leadership team a few years ago, and we, we did sort of that culture definition process. And they left after a day, and the CEO rang me up and he said, okay, one of them's, fu- one of them's quit on the way home. He said, which is just perfect. <laughs> you know, he just said, if this is where we're going, this company's not for me. And he said, that's, that's perfect. Because he said, look, if we can't write these down in a way that they repel as well as attract, then they'll be too vanilla. So they worked really hard to try and make them punchy.
0: Yeah. At Viant, when we did this, rule number one, we, we went around it over and over and over. I'm like, no assholes. And everyone looked around, and everyone was like, "We can't put that on." The-. I'm like, "Yes, we can." You know what? We can put it on whatever. We want. It's our company. We want to put that as rule number one. We can put that as rule number one. And I remember we had a brass plaque, and item one was no assholes. And you know, it. I, I want to say we were the first guys to do that. I know someone wrote a book about it, or subsequently whatever. But to my knowledge, we were we were the first guys, basically. Put it on a brass plate. And the really interesting thing about that is everyone knows exactly what that means, right? Everyone knows exactly what that means. And if you articulate that, that you are really serious about that being one of your rules, that, that will, to your point, attract and repel folks. And, you know, I think there's, there is something to that whole one. Once you get that list right, people should be able to look at it and go, yep. That's the company I want to work for. I wouldn't work for those guys in a million years, right? And, and you know, it becomes a very powerful defining tool for the business. And perhaps the most important thing is that the leaders live those rules. You know, one of the things that, you know, you see is that the people around you want to see whether that was just window dressing or whether, in fact, you really believe those things and i remember a story from the vine days uh, that was that was sort of the around that so uh we had been trying to hire a head of marketing a cmo for the business for a long time we went through all kinds of candidates we were spending real money with Ramsey burn who were like one of the most expensive search firms of their era trying to find the right candidate and we'd found and rejected you know probably a dozen senior folks. And we were starting to track towards IPO and you couldn't IPO without someone in that seat. So we had to find someone. Finally, we found a person. They interviewed in the other offices and passed muster. None of this, none of whatever. So uh, I think they went through Boston and New York and they were now coming to San Francisco to, to interview and just... Make sure because we didn't want to get it wrong. And the company had started in San Francisco. We had ended up relocating the head office HQ to Boston because that's what the VCs wanted. So this guy arrives. I interview him. And at the end of my interview, I say, look, you're going to talk to four other people. And we need to be really clear on something, which is these are real interviews. This is not perfunctory stuff. People are going to be asking you difficult questions. And I need you to to respect the process and treat it the way you would a real interview process. He's like, absolutely, not, not a problem. So we interview and whatever. Guy leaves and we have lunch and everyone who's done interviews that day comes into the thing. And we're like, well, what, let's start with this folk. You know, how do you do? And we go around the room, four people do this and one person does this.
1: Gives you a thumbs down. I'm like,
0: Oh my God. And the person that was giving them the thumbs down was a, literally brand new to the company. They, it was their first job. <laughs> They'd just come out of school and then threw up great, super smart person, young, young lady. I won't mention her name. She'll know who she is. And I was like, So tell me what happened in the interview. And she said, well, we began talking and then about two minutes into the, into the interview, he got a phone call and he said, excuse me. And he took the call and he spent the next 30 minutes on the phone talking to the person. <laughs> and I remember like, like all my senior managers were in the room that day and they all turned and looked at me. I mean, it was you know, a clear violation of our culture and everything that we believe. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm going to have to go back to the CEO because by then we'd gotten a venture-nominated CEO for the business. We didn't all have enough gray hairs back then to run it ourselves and tell this person that this incredibly expensive process that we'd been through to find this individual couldn't go forward because we'd rejected him. And as it was, you know, we weren't in the best of personal relationships at that point. So there was me having to go back to this guy and tell him, I ain't going to fly. And it was, and I remember the my whole team, like looking at me, like, are you going to uphold our values? Are you, even though it might cost you personally big time, are you willing to do this? And I did. And, you know, much to his credit, our CEO understood he was, not a happy man, but he totally understood why, and we started the process again. But there are moments like this in businesses that become defining. That people want to know that you want to live those cultural values, right?
1: Yep. And I, as you were talking, I was just thinking. I remember being going for a job interview a while ago, and uh, the guy was interviewing me. His phone rang, and he got up and walked off and took this call. And he came back and he said, sorry about that. And I went, I just think that was rude. And he said, what do you mean? <laughs> I said, I just think that was rude. And he said, and he started it. I said, I, there's no way I would work for you. <laughs> <laughs> like, goodbye. <laughs> and I, goodbye. And I left because it's just like, <laughs> you just know that it's not a company I'm going to enjoy working for. But, but I, think, I think your story where you say, you're under pressure, it's, it's costing a lot of money, the most junior person gives a thumbs down, lots of companies would have just talked her out of it, and the values are then just a waste of time. They're all a waste of time, not just one of them,
0: they're all just bollocks. They're all, and that's exactly the point. At that point, they're all a waste of time, and I think that that... You know, if, if you ever want me pounding the table on something, you know, one of the things that they're not teaching in business school and in, you know, all the places that people come from and then out of that, they decide to start business is ethics. I think ethics should be a mandatory part of people's education. You know, what is right and what is wrong? That desire for success pushes people to bend rules to You know, do things that they should not do that they know are the wrong thing to do, yet they'll do them because they can't succeed otherwise. And we've got to find, we've, we've got to reset things, I believe. And now I'm sounding like an old guy. Now I sound like my
1: dad. (laughs) (laughs) What I was going to say, what is it you know now you wish you'd known earlier?
0: Probably the most, the most important thing. I started Vine at a point where. I had achieved financial success and didn't, you know, didn't really have to worry about was it going to be successful or not. And, and what it meant was that I could afford to do things the right way. I could afford to like say, no, you know what, even though that's the hard way to do things, that's the way we're going to do it. And, 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 because if it didn't succeed, I, you know, I had other options. And what I realized a number of years after that experience was that if I had somehow managed to create that attitude in myself before the financial side of the equation was the reality, I could have started companies way earlier. Knew, I knew enough to start things, I knew where opportunities lay, I had the skills to do it. What I didn't have is the, my conviction be able to go do it. And there are there are mind games one can play with oneself now that I you know where you, you say, how would I behave if I was in a position where I didn't have to worry about the financial side of the equation and then behave in that way. So as my yoga teacher used to say, you know, how would I behave if I was enlightened? And that's the way you should behave. Right? How would I behave if I had the economic wherewithal to not have to worry about whether this thing works or not, what is the right way to do it? And that is the right way to do it. And you know, the ethics part of the equation, I think, is something that we all need to, we need to go back to what's right and what's wrong.
1: Very good. What books have you got? What book recommendations have you got for me?
0: Well, I, uh, I'm not reading enough technical business stuff. Currently, I find myself going back to my original love and one of the things that took me into technology in the first place, which was my love of science fiction. It's a wonderful genre and has matured greatly in the last 60-plus years. I guess it's been around plus, you know. And I'm rereading a book that I that I've read when it first came out, a book called Nexus by, I'm going to say, Ram Nunez. It's a trilogy of books, and it basically, you know, it's set in the, in the relatively near future. And it's about what happens when brain implants become possible, ah. and they create this thing called neural dust, if you will, that allows us to sink our brains. But in the course of telling that story and all the twists and turns, he basically describes... A lot of technologies that we are currently wrestling with and that we are having discussions on. What happens when AI reaches AGI capability when it passes the Turing test? What do we do about that? How, we, who gets the technology? Who doesn't get the technology? What does that mean to society when this stuff starts becoming a reality? And he does an incredible job of exploring the nuances of it all. I mean, really, I, for a first novel it's it's amazingly well done it just it's i find it very poignant to read you know i'm reading it 10 years after it first came out and it's as relevant today if, if anything it's more relevant than when it first came out the things that he highlights as the opportunities and the things that he highlights as the dangers we're right there these are the things that we are having conversations around and he does a great job of framing all those things so. If you've got time, give them a read.
1: I'll have a look at that. Thank you very much indeed. Tom, um, great chatting. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. See you next week.